You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. A program known as Legal Talk. And Alhamdulillah, Legal Talk uh, really gives you the ins and outs of what's happening in this world of legality. Yeah, we have our Legal Eagle this evening. Welcome uh, back uh, to our very own uh, Ashraf, uh, Senior Attorney Ashraf Isup. Let me uh, greet you with him uh, with a hearty assalamu alaikum. Warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. And tell me, Ashraf, how are you doing this fine, beautiful evening? Walaikum salam warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Shafat, with the grace and help and the blessings of Almighty Allah, exceedingly well, alhamdulillah. I hope the same applies to you and to our dear listeners. I know that we're facing heartache and difficulty around the world. Nevertheless, we give complete thanks to our Creator for everything that He has sent. You know, uh, Ashraf, when we have come into this dunya, uh, there's a reason for it. The reason is uh, that we have to go through trials and uh, tribulations. We have to go through tests. And, uh, you know, sometimes it makes you think, uh, you know, different uh, generations have went through, some were thrown into the fire. Uh, you know, uh, oppression was there all the time. People felt, uh, uh, you know, uh, hard, you know, done. Uh, they were, they were, uh, they, they felt hopeless. That's the word I'm looking for. Hopeless, and there was despair, and they felt like you know, when will we uh, help come and so forth. During the time of the Prophet, we even had that uh, scenario where the Sahaba, the, uh, you know, Anhum told him, since we joined you, you know, there's only hardship here, there's trials and tribulations. When will the help of Allah come? When will the help of, of, of Allah come? And eventually, it came. Uh, Ashraf, you know, as you said, even during these times, when you look at Gaza and you look at the type of scenarios that's coming through, people are feeling the same sort of, you know, maybe feelings and scenarios of the yesteryear. What's your thoughts on that, Ashraf? So, Shafat, strangely, right, the difficulties and the murder of the people of Gaza, the destruction of their property, them being turned out of their home, them being denied food and water, denied medical services. In one sense, it's exactly what happened to the early Medinan society. Our Rasul lost his wife due to the famine imposed on them. He had to send a uh, delegation in exile to the Negus of Abyssinia because he knew the man was a true Christian and he would abide by the Bible. What has happened with the suffering of Gaza and the devastation wreaked on these people in many ways is a recreation of history on one level, as I've explained. But certainly it has awakened the entire world's consciousness about what is happening. And ordinary people have turned out in their millions to say, stop the genocide. Even people of the Jewish faith have also come out and spoken, saying this is not in our name. Ultra-Orthodox Jews have come out and said that this is against their religion. So what I'm saying is, yes, There is immense suffering and heartache and unbearable 
tragedy unfolding on people and their children and their mothers and babies all you know you, I, I can give you a list as you know we've been covering the ICJ's hearings and the list of the sufferings of the people of Gaza is innumerable but look what has happened it has brought people out onto the street it has brought and manifested an application by the South African government to the International Court of Justice for redress for at least a ceasefire it has brought people even in the united nations the attention of the security council and general assembly sharply into focus it has there's now a call for a reform of those bodies who wield huge power and of course one nation can simply override the will of all 150 or 160 other nations just by the power of the veto which in itself is is extremely uh, unequal so i agree that there is a hard time but the hope that has uh, been born today and yesterday if you saw the responses from people of gaza in in the midst of all of their misery they said thank you for not forgetting us so they have hope they have renewed uh, their trust in everything but of course we know our hope and our trust lies completely in our creator however there are mechanisms that we employ in the dunya i mean if you if you sick and you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you medicine you know that the doctor didn't create the cure that Allah did but at that moment you believe it was the doctor's skill and knowledge of medicine that assisted you now what i'm saying is through your despair and difficulties comes hope i think the quranic ayat is after hardship comes ease after hardship comes ease here we are witnessing it in our daily lives in a matter of few months our lives have been turned upside down you haven't had an opportunity to for a moment relax and forget about what is happening in fact it has instilled a, a sense of responsibility uh, in 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 so far as a simple thing like what you eat you're very conscious and careful of before there was always oh this uh, fast food goes with this drink now you'd be surprised to say people are saying no to fast food and no to a particular drink and drinking water or looking for alternatives so you can see from this tragedy so much has come shafat you make a lot of sense ashraf and yeah many many companies have gone down 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 because of uh, what's happening the repercussion and it shows the uh, people power and if the people you know get together and they use the influence uh, they can get things done because uh, the uh, these conglomerates uh, that are run perhaps by the zionist uh, 
that cause a mayhem throughout the world, and they allow this to happen. But, uh, you know, Ashraf, if you look at this, uh, many will say, okay, there's a case going on. The presentation is, uh, you know, South Africa versus Israel. And, uh, you know, if you look at South Africa, sought uh, a two-part thing, I uh, know, to secure an uh, interdiction against Israel. And, uh, you know, uh, let's hope uh, that can happen. Then, uh, you know, maybe an Im- immediate ceasefire also. But will that take time, Ashrafa? Because when you look at this, uh, doesn't it have to go back to the Security Council for uh, being accepted that and only the Security Council can implement uh, uh, what the findings are, Ashraf? So uh, I'm glad you actually asked this question, Shafat. Let's uh, let's take an introspection into the matter at the ICJ. It is similar to a South African application in the High Court for what we will call urgent interim relief. Now, at the urgent interim relief stage, you do not look into the merits. You do not look into whether genocide has been properly defined and if it is really that Israel is guilty of it. That is what we will uh, refer to the merits in the long term. In the short term, given the human catastrophe and every human life is precious and it allows for an approach to the International Court of Justice by any member state. So this convention, the Genocide Convention, goes back to 1945 to 1951. And South Africa was a signatory, as was Israel. In terms of the Genocide Convention, South South Africa's argument is that it is acting wholly within the articles of the Genocide Convention because it is a member state filing a complaint against a fellow member state. So this is the forum where member states are able to engage with each other and remind each other that there are certain minimum requirements for them as contracting parties. Now, one of them is, I would say, Article 1 was very interesting because South Africa said that they confirm whether genocide is committed at any time, whether in peace or war, it is a crime under international law. So that's the first thing. It's a crime. And second, they undertake to prevent and to punish. Now, interestingly, this uh, genocide convention came just after the Second World War. You know, the people were still reeling from the history of the Holocaust, the genocide, and really the great loss of humanity on both occasions of the First and Second World War. So what they said, what they want to do is liberate mankind from such a scourge, you know, and they needed international cooperation. So as I've just said, as a contracting state in terms of Article 1, this is what South Africa wanted to put forward. And, it, you know, there was a whole definition of what genocide is 
and uh, you know killing of a member of the group uh, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group inflicting uh, conditions of life calculated to bring physical destruction you know you could see all of these definitions were met and then it said what we doing is we trying to find a broad definition of what is punishable so genocide itself is punishable conspiracy to commit genocide is punishable direct and public incitement and any attempt to commit genocide and complicity in genocide so you can see the net is very very wide in order to include as many people as possible in the prevention of genocide in order that it is not repeated now article 4 is also very very interesting because they speak of the constitutional responsibility of the rulers public officials and private individuals they also under article 5 undertake to pass domestic legislation to give pre- uh, uh, provisions to the present con- uh, convention so this uh, article 6 is basically an answer to your question what happens when all this is over if a person is charged with genocide or any of the other acts as we just explained in article 3 right they will be tried by competent tribunal of the state in which the territory where the act was committed or by such international penal tribunal that as may have jurisdiction in respect of the parties which have accepted its jurisdiction such as the ICC now we know that israel hasn't accepted the jurisdiction of the international criminal court but you here you could see if the minimum standard is in an urgent application mm. of this nature where you say here's the reasons for the urgency there is mass killing of the people of, of gaza there is destruction of their homes there is no access to medical care of any kind there is starvation there is execution of uh, medical personnel there is bombing of hospitals so you you know all the evidence was led that there is a prima facie case of genocide and all that they asking for at this interim stage is what is provided in the convention which is basically immediate ceasefire that's the minimum standard they want some of the other things that south africa has called upon is for the preservation of evidence they haven't called upon the prosecution of any of the parties you see now also the contracting parties can call upon the un because the icj is an organ of the un it's the highest court in the world and they can call for the un to act in terms of its charter hence i'm saying that there might be other ways now of dealing with how the un has basically just uh, been unable 
to implement all of its resolutions. And, you know, these resolutions have been going on for uh, 75 years. So it was it was interesting to see that such an application was brought with a with a request for interim relief. And that interim relief uh, basically speaks of a ceasefire, which is very, very important, uh, you know, just so that the people can benefit by some of the aid that is going through, you know, not being subject to torture. Uh, I mean, a, a, an important point that was raised was the children of Gaza, who were treated as a separate group, apart from being denied their childhood, were denied uh, three months of schooling, which is very, very important in, in the long term uh, for their advancement. Um, so, I, you know, I hope I've made it clear what this mm. thing is all about, that it is only an interim measure. And I'm hopeful that uh, the judgment, whenever it comes out, uh, will be in favor of the ceasefire, because this ceasefire resolution went all the way up to the Security Council and was vetoed by the U.S. There were other permanent members that may have been uh, have abstained, etc. But the General Assembly, which doesn't apparently have any binding powers, voted overwhelmingly in favor of a ceasefire. We know there was a temporary ceasefire and the exchange of hostages, etc. But I think that was like a trial run. It was to see whether there is going to be any proper intention to give effect to a long-term ceasefire. And South Africa has been congratulated by the world, basically, uh, because it had the responsibility of examining a piece of international legislation and then bringing an application in a court in which it was an equal party to the uh, Israeli government and state on state, it was able to bring an application to say, you must come and answer as a fellow signatory to the Genocide Convention, because these are my charges against you. I'm saying to you that you are in breach of the Genocide Convention. And we have to wait and see how this matter turns out in the end. But I hope that gives you a clear understanding of this legal process, Shafa. Mm. Absolutely brilliant, Ashraf. But, you know, I'm assuming that the court does not have to determine, you know, that all of the acts are complained, uh, you know, of, uh, are capable of falling within the, uh, maybe the prevention of the con- uh, convention, Ashraf. Uh, if it uh, suffices uh, that it, at least some of the acts alleged are capable of falling within the provision of con- the convention, uh, equally, the court does not need to ascertain whether the existence of a genocidal intent is uh, the only inference uh, to be drawn from the material before the court, Ashraf, as, as this requirement will amount to the court making a determine or a determination on uh, the merit of the case. But the merit of the case is uh, powerful, very powerful indeed, uh, Ashraf. As I've said, Shafat, uh, the merits are part of. It is not to be determined now. The only question is, is there a prima facie case made by Mm. the South African government? And I must tell you, it had very, very competently 
unpacked what it considered to be genocide. And it was divided into acts as well as intentions. In respect of acts, it was very glaring that Advocate Adila Hassan, senior counsel, used in her argument images to bolster her claim that there was indeed a genocide going on. She could speak of collective punishment. She, could, she, she was able to articulate how the so-called war on Hamas was really a war on the people of Gaza. And numerous examples were given of mass killings. Not only that, the other part of the argument centered around the intention of government officials to carry out the genocide. Now, if you come back to just the manner in which uh, the people were, were killed in Gaza, for example, the bombing of or, or using about 200 uh, warheads in excess of 200 pounds. I mean, that amount of, of bombs in a very small compressed area can only mean that you intended to harm the population. It could not mean that you were only going after a group of uh, resistance fighters like Hamas is, or going after them for whatever they may or may not have done uh, on the 7th of uh, October. So, so there she was at real, um, she was at real pains to set out how much of the destruction had occurred, including the um, withholding of medical supplies, uh, cutting off of water, uh, forced starvations, um, snipers. I mean, the uh, soldiers were firing behind uh, the separation fences um, to, to, you know, to children and people who were standing just meters apart, uh, unarmed. And I mean, it was horrible. One soldier said that he shot 42 knees in one day. I mean, how, how do you actually fathom some, something like that, where you snipe children, journalists, doctors? You know, we saw the note that was left by the doctors on the wall that if they are not to be found and people are to remember, that they stood till the end. Now, independently of, uh, let's say, the people of Gaza and anyone else, they used other evidence um, from the human rights inquiry 
into what had transpired there. They also spoke of the high-level fact-finding mission to Beit Hanun under the Council Resolution in 2008. I mean, this goes all the way back to uh, 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 Archbishop Bishop Desmond Tutu and Professor Chinkin. So you can see that they were unpacking the conflict from a very, very long time. How long has it been dragging on? And this is what was happening. Now, all of this was brought together under the present application to show that there was a systematic and repeated attack on the people of Gaza. And as I'm trying to explain, they were giving evidence that was based from independent research as well as a docu as well as um, various news reports you know where you could see uh, mass graves for example so these were all of the actions that she was speaking about and i think she's done a, a sterling job in, in conveying to the court the nature of her evidence and you know, an impassioned plea that they have to recognize that there was a genocide. Because if there's no genocide, how you how you calling for a cessation of um, of the killings? You see. Now, she also referred to the international, uh, you know, bodies like the International Red Cross, the United Nations, and each of them. They that made their findings available over the years. And really, some say that this killing or this genocide in Gaza is the worst in living memory. Now, I mean, you can imagine that uh, in, in the wars of past, uh, I think somebody mentioned that there was like a thousand people killed a day. But in Gaza, in this very short time, it appears that more than that thousand people a day were killed. If, if you're taking numbers, you know, I, I don't want to simply, uh, you know, call people's deaths by numbers, but I'm just giving it as an example uh, of, of the kind of evidence that was led regarding the actions taken. So there was the actions, right? Part of the submissions, <clears throat> um, is really that there was nowhere to go. The people of Gaza were ordered to leave northern Gaza in 24 hours. One million people. Where do one million people go to? You know, I often speak of Gaza as a concentration camp, and I can only liken it to the township of Alex that we have just here in Johannesburg. You know, where there's cramped living conditions, terrible um, uh, scale of uh, lack of hygiene, etc. But, you know, people just manage to survive. Having managed to survive, you are now asked to leave in 24 hours. And you had to because there was no other option. And when you left and you went to a safe space, well, you found that it wasn't safe. Uh, doctors, journalists, teachers, they were also killed. 
at an unprecedented rate. Um, the second part of, of, of the Geneva Con Convention was where she concentrated on the causing of serious bodily and mental harm to the Palestinians. Over 55,000 were, were, were wounded. You know, they had burns and amputations. And we heard of mothers and children being operated on without anesthetic, um, uh, babies being deprived of uh, oxygen, having had now uh, uh, chest ailments, um, the rising dangers from the bodies under the rubble. So there's there's a belief that there's another 7,000 bodies uh, under the rubble. I mean, can you imagine all of this in 90 days? What's happened to those bodies? And how, uh, you know, the disease that will spread to the people there. So they've spoken about the psychological um, impact of repeated violence, uh, witnessing your mother, your family being killed, uh, your house is being demolished. So obviously that is of deep concern because it has a dramatic impact on children. These children are going to be scarred for life with this, as have the present generation and the generations before them. So again, in terms of the convention, a uh, very deep dive into the mental and psychological impact We've already spoken of the mass expulsion from the homes and the displacement of the people of Gaza. They are never going to be able to leave, and if they leave, never be able to come back. So if you leave, you're doomed. If you can't leave, you're doomed. So the only option is then you are going to be killed. I mean, just let that sink in for a minute, that somebody decides today that 250 people of your community will be killed. How does that make you feel? How much can you bear? How much more are you able to put up with? Now, we have a further, um, a further, uh, well, let me just finish this point. So, uh, you know, the United Nations found that the Palestinians were not safe, even to a sliver of of uh, of land. You know, no place is safe. Imagine that. Imagine they mm. say you've got nowhere to go. You're not safe. You 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 just can't imagine how this will make you feel. That you feel trapped, uh, all of you, all your neighbors, your family, and then you know having nowhere to go. And of course, the other very serious charge is the deprivation of access to food and water. Now, you know, the relief trucks that were sent in are deliberately slowed down. They reduce the numbers. They searched endlessly. And by the time they get there, the people are absolutely hungry and become almost uncontrollable. But can you imagine that psychological impact on those people as well? Having no electricity, no, fo no food, no water to enter the strip, either by sea or by land, there's only two exits, one at the Rafah crossing and the other one in the north that has been closed off by the Israeli authorities. So, you know, you 
you can't imagine this, that in this day and age, you're actually witnessing such terrible, terrible atrocities in front of you daily and not knowing what to do. If we are so frustrated and hurt and upset by not knowing what to do, let's for a moment focus on the lives of the people that are there on the ground. As we speak, Israel is conducting its mm. ground offensive. It's, it, it's using jets. It's using the most sophisticated military equipment available in the world that has been uh, supplied by the US by the, uh, and the UK by the uh, plane loads. I mean, Rishi Sunak, when he visited, he visited the back or he was getting off at the back of a um, military airplane. Now, you know, what does that tell you uh, when you see things like this happening? So that was, um, I'm sorry to have labored it so much, but I think it was important to try and Absolutely. cover what uh, Advocate Adila Hassam was saying were the four, let's say, uh, breaches uh, by Israel, and she's, you know, uh, unpacked that extremely well. Now we come to uh, the, uh, sorry, I forgot to mention, uh, you know, they didn't have access to adequate shelter, hygiene, hygiene, sanitation, and clothes. You can imagine now, again, wearing the same set of clothes for week after week, not having water to wash it in, uh, it's cold, Shelter. Shelter is what we take for granted. We in the summer, that is a day in the winter, it's cold. Uh, it's wet. If, if you watch the television screen, you can see the daily conditions that are there. So there you go. Those were uh, some of the things highlighted by her. And uh, I think it's important to just end that one by saying what the international Medicine Without Borders wrote, um, and this was recent, eh, 4th of December. Uh, Israel has shown a blatant disregard for the protection of Gaza's medical facilities, and they were witnessing hospitals being turned into mortuaries. I mean, we even saw the, uh, you know, amputation of children without anesthetic for severe burns. I mean, just just unbelievable. But that's what Medicine Without Borders had to report as part of the actions. Those are the actions that we were talking about. Now, with actions go uh, intention. So, so, so the team also had to um, prove intention. Shavad, I don't know, I'm speaking a bit too yeah, much. Yeah. Would you like to come? No, no, yeah, no, no, it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, uh, there's some, uh, a point that was running through my head, but, you know, South Africa also detailed uh, numerous examples of, you know, direct and uh, public incitement to commit a genocide by the Israeli state officials, including by the Prime Minister Ashraf Benjamin Netanyahu, the threats to make Gaza permanently uninhabitable, the reference to Palestinians as human uh, animals and you know these were all claimed in the documents but what i want to get through is even the uh, american uh, president you know you looked at biden uh, uh, you know the uh, 
talking the lies, uh, repeating what uh, Israel told him as if he was uh, their their puppet. You know, he even uh, lied about uh, October 7th, where he said, yeah, there were babies uh, were, uh, uh, beheaded and this happened and women were raped and all. Uh, subsequently proven by, uh, you know, even Western media that these were lies. Now, what happens, you know, with the, these people that, that are part of this genocide because they fuel the flames, uh, Ashraf? What happens then? You remember in our articles when we were defining genocide, complicity, complicity to commit genocide, um, aiding and abetting uh, genocide is uh, is another uh, species of harm that is actionable. Now, let's just for a moment come back to the focus that you, you brought uh, regarding the intention. So you had to also find the who who was saying these things because if there's an action, there has to be an intention. So the document starts by basically looking at, as you correctly pointed out, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, I mean, striking you know fear um, on the 7th of October. By 15th of October, there were already airstrikes that killed 2,000. 600 Palestinians. Now, there's the Prime Minister stating that Israeli soldiers must be ready to de- defeat bloodthirsty monsters uh, who, you know, wanted to destroy Israel. More, more than that, in the, Nes- in the Knesset, this was, this was unbelievable. You know, he was talking about the struggle between the children of light and the children of mm. darkness between humanity and the law of the jungle. You know, it dehumanized the Palestinians completely. And he then spoke, you remember, of the Amalek. You know, he he's... He yes, the, this, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, he's calling them monsters and monsters or, uh, you know, uh, barbarians. It is a battle of civilization against barbarians. So... These things, as far as he's concerned, spoke to uh, his genocidal intention. But worse is his aiding and abetting in the following words that make your hair stand. Now go attack Amalek. So Amalek was his biblical tribe so long ago, but now he's positioning them in the present and proscribe all that belongs to him. Spare no one. I mean, he's reading from the Bible. Kill men and women, infants, suckling, oxygen, uh, oxen, sheep, camel, and asses. You know, you think you're watching a horror movie here. This can't be real, but this is real. This is what had happened. The president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, was clear that there's no distinguishing between militants and civilians of Gaza. He says the entire nation out there is is responsible. So this this is what they refer to as collective punishment. He says it's not true this rhetoric about civilians and they don't know and they were not involved. And he his his words we will fight until we break their backbone. I mean you talk about women and children that had nothing to do with any of what had had gone on. 
And he was now, uh, you know, saying to the world, we're going to uproot this evil so they'll be good for the entire region and the world. So by killing, maiming and bombing the um, the Palestinians, you, you would be doing the entire world a favor. Now, here's one of the things that he had known was write, writing messages on the bombs to be uh, dropped on Gaza. I mean, can you imagine that? The Minister of Defense, again, uh, he wanted to, imp- uh, uh, as far back as 9th October, he wanted to impose a complete siege of Gaza. Now, we, there was obviously there was no electricity, food, water, etc. Everything was already closed. But he described the people as human animals. And, you know, he says, we're acting accordingly. Now, you know, an animal is killed either for uh, being a nuisance or uh, for its, uh, you know, uh, meat and hide. Uh, but if, you, if you're referring to people and you'll be killing them without restraint, then, again, evidence of ge- genocidal intent. And, you know, he said, like, Gaza won't return to where it will be. It will eliminate everything. He says, even if it will take a week, months, we will reach all places. And this is the fear that if there is no interim relief, no interim measure, then this thing will continue unabated and um, until Israel basically flattens Gaza. We can go on, you know, they were... Mm. Uh, uh, they you know, were uh, I, what I'm thinking of, uh, Ashraf, whilst we talk about, yeah, the battle goes on, but uh, there is also another side to the story. Whilst, uh, you know, the case is on and things uh, things are happening, um, there is uh, Hezbollah in the equation. There is, uh, you know, Hamas in the equation. And there is uh, something else uh, that uh, it's not that easy for the uh, IDF of, of, of what they're doing. I mean, they got the Indians there, they got Italians in, they got the Americans, they got Britishers, all fighting this uh, you know, this genocide, I, they call it a war. It's not a war. It's a genocide. So these countries are all complicit in that. But I want to fast track you, Ashraf. I want to fast track and tell you, you know, whether the ICJ will find in favor of uh, South Africa. And if it does, whether Israel will comply with the, the order of the ICJ because they're so stubborn uh, or honor of its uh, international law obligations or its compliance uh, would, uh, you know, uh, would have to be forced on by the UN Security Council well, that is one big question. United States willing. Are they willing, Ashraf? So, Shafar, I just want to go back to your first opening sentence. And I think, we you know, one, one needs to make this very, very clear. Gee. Both the Houthis and Hezbollah form the Shia part of this conflict. And we must be mindful of that. Uh, you know, it's like saying it's the elephant in the room, but... Really, the, that is the fact of the matter, is that whatever aid or whatever fight we see uh, appears uh, to be coming from these two quarters. Now, why is that important? Because the Minister of Heritage, he said very, very chillingly, uh, uh, Shafat, I mean, there is no such thing as an uninvolved civilian he even posited a nuclear attack on the Gaza Strip. Now, you know, if that happens, the geopolitics changes 
First of all, this is not unlike the United States, which bombed the innocent citizens of Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the war with a nuclear bomb. Yes. And devastation. We saw where there were accidental nuclear leaks like Fukushima. I mean, the devastation and uh, the, the one in Ukraine. I forget the name now. There was a man. Chernobyl. Yes, Chernobyl. So, so you can imagine now what will happen if there is that. And then is there going to be such a response to that? What it appears to me to say is nobody is going to overcome us militarily. So I think, in a way, we, we, we mustn't, you know, bet on Hezbollah entering the fray. Because thus far, for me, I'm serious, there's just been a lot of talk from people and uh, many nations that say that they support the Palestinians. I, I haven't seen a single missile fired from their sovereign territory. It's all these uh, proxy wars that seem to be going on. But notwithstanding the fact that both the Houthis and Hezbollah are basically Shia-backed militia, back to the very serious intention that if they're going to lose the war, and this happened in 1973 as well, when Israel was about to lose the war and they had mobilized nuclear warheads, and uh, the American president called them and said, please stop, I will send you the aid. And the aid came the next day and changed the the. Um, change the uh, outcome of the war. So, very serious threat is that it's a nuclear armed nation and will not hesitate to use it because this is what their own uh, officials are saying. Now, I know I've been laboring on and on about this, but I was trying uh, to very painstakingly demonstrate the case that was being made out for the intention part of this because you've got to prove genocidal intention. And if you take into account all of these things, including the very last one, you know, the 95-year-old army reservist, uh, he was a veteran of the Deir Yassin massacre in 1948. You know, he very proudly uh, came to boost the morale of the Israeli troops. And, I mean, his words is, be triumphant, finish them off, don't leave anyone behind. Erase the memory of them, erase them, their families, mothers, children. These animals can no longer live. This is a man who is 95 years old. Mm. He's on, on the deathbed, you know, drop bombs on them. And, and he hasn't, uh, he hasn't neg- uh, regretted his, his massacre of the people of Diriasin in 48. So all of these things, right, uh, point towards what we would call call evidence of the intent to commit genocide. It's gone right down. I just want to end on this. The the Israeli soldiers, and and there was footage of this as well, uh, boasting about wiping out villages, you know, by dancing and singing and chanting and, uh, you know, that they're going to wipe off the seed of Amalek. I mean, Again, amazing, amazing that you say and do these things and you can get away from it and you can get away with it, which is what you're asking me. What exactly will happen Mm. once 
there is a finding, if there is a finding that Israel was guilty of genocide. Remember that the definition of genocide was very wide and the people participating or basically supporting it have basically made themselves available to be prosecuted. And I think that's where uh, local uh, jurisdictions will come into play, um, like South Africa could possibly, uh, you know, act against South Africans maybe that have uh, left South Africa to go and fight for the IDF because it's aiding and abetting in a, in a war crime, uh, the crime of uh, genocide, if there is such a finding. So we will be given greater authority in terms of international law <clears throat> to uh, engage with these participants. <clears throat> Shafat, sorry. <clears throat> yeah, but I, mean, I can tell you, Ashraf, you were sounding uh, brilliant this uh, evening and, you know, you're very concise and powerful indeed. Uh, something went through my mind, you know, once there were deliberations at the ICJ, how big is this, uh, you know, the judge or the panel that is listening to you and how long will they take uh, to deliberate on a decision, Ashraf? So very important question. So there are 15 permanent judges, right, from the nations that basically fund the ICJ, which includes representatives of um, the United States, United Kingdom, and a whole lot of other jurisdictions. Each one of them have taken an oath to uphold, to be fair, and to rule without fear and favor. The two ad hoc judges that we saw was Dikhan Motsenecker from South Africa and Judge uh, Barak from uh, Israel. And both of them have also taken the oath. Now, next question. It's a simple majority uh, of the sitting judges. As we saw, it was a full bench, 17 judges. So the majority's judgment will carry favor on whether South Africa had succeeded in proving its case on the uh, civil level of balance of probabilities. It doesn't have to go through the uh, beyond a reasonable doubt test, which is the higher test. And they'll make a judgment or they'll make a finding. We expect the finding to take at least a week, which is pretty quick. Uh, if you if you think of uh, how urgent matters are brought mm. in the South African court, it's within a reasonable time. And I think uh, we, we, you know, we, we, we're beginning to see results. We're beginning to see, I mean, for the first time, South Africa had engaged quite vigorously, diplomatically with the Israeli government. It sent note verbal at, at various points, even, and it only got an answer 36 hours ago from the Attorney General of Israel saying that, can we engage uh, you know, to try and talk about this. But uh, South Africa said, no, but the process is already underway, uh, engaging, uh, you know, in getting uh, basically a, a unilateral undertaking, if there was going to be one, was not going to be helpful because you can't really hold a state uh, to its unilateral undertaking. So in, in other words, it's saying, we can't really uh, trust you to keep your words, you see. But when you said to me, um, you know, uh, who who is uh, who is liable is very important that Article 3 eh, uh, C, it says any direct and public incitement to, connect, uh, to commit genocide 
is in violation of Article 3. So when mm. you met, when you mentioned the mm. American government or regime, uh, that's a direct and public incitement. Um, then very broadly, attempting to commit genocide, complicity in the genocide, uh, and then failing to punish genocide, conspiracy to commit, direct and public incitement. I mean, all of these things are in terms of the uh, articles uh, in the um, Geneva, uh, in the uh, Convention on Genocide. I, I think uh, providing effective penalties uh, for persons who are guilty in genocide uh, is a uh, necessary part of any com- any country's legislation. Look, Shabbat, we know that in the case of Ukraine, exactly what the Palestinians yes. are suffering, barring that it is a state on its own, and barring the fact that there was an undertaking not to make Ukraine a uh, member of NATO, which the Russians considered a direct threat on its border, and the fact that pre-World War II, Ukraine was part of Russia. Barring all of those things, you can see the treatment of the same crimes against two peoples, where one was was found in the, so where, where there was a finding in favor of the people of Ukraine against Russia. So legally, we speak of precedent, right? The law is based on precedent. Yes. And this is precisely what the group set out to do, is to convince the court that they had no choice. They were bound by precedent. They could do nothing but enforce or find for the applicants um, without uh, fear or favor, because there was already a precedent available in the uh, court's jurisdictions, and they had to be consistent with how they dealt with uh, people of, uh, of both Gaza and the people of Ukraine. So I thought, you know, mm-hmm. interestingly, that those were the uh, so those were the outcomes. And as we know, in the case of Russia, when the matter went to the ICC, they arrested a uh, sorry, they issued a warrant of arrest for Putin. For I mean, Putin, it was yeah. quite serious that he didn't attend South Africa's BRIC conf- uh, BRICS conference. Yes, I don't you know, think he's toothless. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I know he's not. Uh, but uh, very quickly, Ashraf, two points I want you to discuss uh, before we end up. We have about, uh, yeah, we have about five minutes, uh, three minutes to go. Number one, uh, the removal of, uh, you know, the uh, paintings of Palestine in uh, the council, uh, in, in, in Cape Town in the by the city council. And number two, the role played by Nalidi Pando in bringing about, you know, what has happened, this historical moment at the ICJ. Very quickly, Ashraf. Sure. So in in Cape Town, we saw that um, in the Boer Cup, there was an entire building uh, painted in the colors of the Palestinian flag. And that that was council building, but it was then owned by the residents that occupied it. And the one in Lavender Hills was council property. And the residents painted the, the flag of Palestine and the council came back and painted it over. I mean, it was outrageous 
that they've been collecting rent from 1948. You could see the entire facade of all of the buildings is that they were neglected. And yet, because this was council property, uh, and uh, you know, you have to ask why was it that this deserved to be painted over? There was also a, a view that there was so much of graffiti of the most foul and terrible kind in other parts of the city's assets, and nothing was done uh, to, to, to paint over it. And, and the people were complaining that that kind of thing fuels the downward spiral of the community into drugs, into gangs, into killings. Yet the council uh, didn't treat it with the same uh, set of rules. So uh, there in the book up, you saw the, this building. I understand there's going to be another building that is going to be painted. And uh, you and I both know two or three weeks ago, there was a massive outdoor zikr. People turned out from every quarter, coming just with their humble prayer to say to Allah, accept our, our prayers, help the Palestinians. And as we know, zikr is there to praise Allah. And, and that's what the people had done quite commendably. The role of Naledi Pando, I think uh, this is a, a, you know something that's going to be written down in history. She's been very, very vociferous. Uh, at the African Union, when Israel tried to attend as a observer, she mm. she took she took it to task. She said this is not correct. Um, she's been uh, on she's been standing her ground at the United Nations, um, and 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 uh, we can see that I'm I have no doubt that because she is the minister in Durko, um, and this was an initiative by the by uh, Durko as well as the Department of Justice, where Minister Lamola was present, as well as Ambassador our ambassador uh, to The Hague, uh, both of them addressed the court. So I, I, I would submit that she's played a tremendous, tremendous role uh, as a minister showing responsibility, trying to address these measures. Of course, all of this is based on our historical links to Palestine. I mean, uh, we know the late president said that Palestine, South Africa will not be free until Palestine is free. In a uh, radio and television interview when he was just released, he was criticized for his friendship with Yasser Arafat and the Cuban dictator Castro. And he said, but these are the people that helped us uh, when we were when we were when we were oppressed and when we, when we were being killed. And the other side of the coin is Andrew Feinstein has reminded us very well, and he's an ex-ANC parliamentarian. And uh, he's, um, he reminded us of the cooperation between the state of Israel and the apartheid regime, uh, which, which uh, you know, spans many, many decades. So these are some of the other things that, you know, take uh, uh, very, make very interesting conversations. But mm. definitely Naledi Pando has, I think she's, um, you know, she has to be commended for being an exemplary minister. Well, you're an exemplarily da attorney, a senior attorney. I really enjoyed having you back. It felt like the old firm is back and uh, doing what it does best. Uh, Ashraf, your parting words before I let you go. As always, our dependence is completely on our creator. We only ask Allah for victory and for assistance. Allah does that and acts through his creation. And let us be beneficiaries of this. Let us give thanks for all that we have. 
let us not take for granted even when you take a sip of water that or you throwing a glass of water away let's you know that is very very precious at the end of the day keep on the 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 um the the yasin khatam you know there were anecdotal evidence of people saying that uh, some of the soldiers that the israelis were facing according to them were like ghosts so allah sends his help in his way our job is to do what we need to do steadfastness prayer hope assistance and always make dua for the return of the true deen of islam which is where we're getting to in the end we ask allah to you know bless all of you bless the station its founders the your technical team of course our dear listeners and everybody else with good intention jazakallah khaira ashraf you have a blessed evening indeed and we'll talk to you soon assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Time for us to go for the Isha Zan and inshallah we will continue after that.